Welcome back, everybody, to Rick's Mix Podcast. Um, today, we're going to be doing the second part of the uh, book that I started writing uh, several years ago. It's called Dancing Lessons from God. We did the first part in the last podcast, so today we're going to continue with part two. Uh, we're going to pick it up with chapter three, entitled, I'm Leaving on a Jet Plane. So before I could get to Germany, I would first have to fly down to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, to do all my in-processing, get issued all my uniforms, get all my shots, all that wonderful stuff you have to do when you join the Army. Fortunately, because I was prior to service and had only been out of the Army Reserves less than two years, I was not forced to go back through basic training again. If I was, I probably would not have done it. Now, basic training is one of those things that you're glad you did it and proud you made it through, but you never, ever, ever want to do it again. Fort Jackson is the main basic training base for the U.S. Army, so there were plenty of young, scared faces on the plane. We stopped over in Charlotte, North Carolina on the way down, and as I was sitting in the food court waiting for my next flight, who walks by but Drew Bledsoe? In 1998, Bledsoe was the New England Patriots' starting quarterback. He was only a year removed from a Super Bowl appearance and was a major celebrity back home. Nobody else seemed to recognize him as he and his two travel companions stood in line waiting for their food, so I nervously went up and said hi. Uh, excuse me, Drew. He turned and looked at me. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, I, I'm actually from just outside Boston. I'm a huge Patriots fan. I just enlisted in the Army, and I'm on my way to Germany for the next three years. But I just wanted to tell you that the thing I'm going to miss most about home is probably watching you guys play every Sunday. Cool, thanks, man. Germany, huh? I got a couple of friends who are in there. Uh, they're in the Army as well. Yeah, they say it's awesome. Great beer. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking looking forward to it. Uh, anyway, I, I just want to say hi and, uh, you know, good luck next season. Thanks. Good luck in Germany, man. You're going to have a great time there. I felt pretty stupid, but I'd never really met anyone famous before, and I had no idea what to say. I just remember I ran right over to the payphone. I called Mike and Jen back home to tell them about it, but they weren't home, so I, I got their voicemail, and they just left a frantic message that went something like, oh, my God, guys, you'll never guess who I just ran into in the airport in Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, my God, it was Drew Bledsoe. I was so nervous. I said hi, but I didn't know what to say. I must have sounded like an idiot. So with my brush with celebrity, such as it was behind me, I got on a plane still a bit excited about meeting one of my hometown sports heroes. When I got off the plane in Columbia, South Carolina later that night, I was snapped back into reality. There was an E-7 in his dress uniform screaming his head off at everybody. Get your shit! Get in line! No talking! Eyes straight ahead! Hey, I said no talking! Are you freaking deaf? I thought to myself, holy crap, what have I gotten myself into? Am I crazy? What the hell was I thinking? I'm standing there with all the young basic training recruits, most of them just out of high school, and for the first time I'm thinking that I made a really big mistake when the guy spots me. I guess I must have stood out among the younger people when he walks over to me. I'm thinking, oh no, what the hell did I do? Why is he walking towards me? Shit, this was a bad idea. He stopped about 10 feet away and pointed at me. Are you prior service? Uh, yes, Sergeant. Okay, get out of that line. You don't need to be with all these new guys. Whew, I thought to myself. Now, fortunately, the prior service people were treated a little bit better than the basic trainees since we'd already been, been through it all before. We had to go through all the same in processing that they did, but we had separate barracks. We had a lot more freedom. I made some good friends during the five or six days that we were there waiting to go overseas, which made the trip a little more easier to deal with. <clears throat> there was one guy who really just begged to be made fun of. He was from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. My brother used to work up there, and he told me that people make fun of people they call youpers. Uh, and they make fun of him quite a bit as they see him as kind of like backwards rednecks, I guess. Now, let me tell you, this guy fit the bill. We called him Yuppie. Guy actually brought a hockey stick with him. We were like, hey, uh, you know, you could probably buy a hockey stick when you get to Germany, right? But he just could not stand apart with his hockey stick. We were allowed two check bags and one carry-on, and Yuppie brought his hockey stick as his carry-on. <laughs> and he asked us about a dozen times on the flight over, hey, hey, guys, you guys think we might be able to get a game together when we get to Germany? It was just about May 1st. That was Yuppie. Another guy from Montana told me that he enlisted active duty to go to Germany for one reason and one reason alone so he could ski the Alps. Now, you must really love to ski if you're willing to join the Army just to do it. There was a kid named Bosch who was just crazy. He, had a, he was 19 years old, as I recall. He had a tongue ring. He used to try to tell us that he had actually once done a secret airborne jump into North Korea, with a straight face even. He was just kind of humored at him and said, wow, that must have been quite a harrowing adventure. He lived a hell of a life for a 19-year-old kid. Then there was Stephanie. Stephanie was the very definition of white trailer trash. She was 24, from the swamps outside of Tallahassee, Florida. She'd worked in a bar since she was 12 years old, she told us. She had three kids, she wasn't married, and she had one of the thickest southern accents I'd ever heard in my life. 
She was mildly attractive. She loved to gamble and was very friendly. I hadn't met very many women like her in my life, so I was kind of intrigued by her. We all flew to Germany together except for Stephanie, who had to remain at Fort Jackson to testify against a married E-5 sergeant who had repeatedly tried to coerce her into having sex with him while he was supposed to be supervising our work detail. True story. My landing in Germany was a moment I'll never forget. We touched down at Rhein-Main Air Base, which shared a runway with the Frankfurt International Airport. The base was small, and while most people would call it old, I call it historic. Rhein-Main was the home of the 64th Replacement Station, and as such was where all of the military personnel arriving in Europe had to go to do their processing and receive their assignments. It was so named because it sits near the confluence of two major rivers, the Rhine and the Main. As I looked around and I saw the big Gateway to Europe sign, I couldn't help but think about all the soldiers who had been there before me and walked the same path. Elvis Presley was once stationed in Germany. Had he walked under the same gateway, Europe to, gateway to Europe sign that I did? Probably. There was so much history in that place. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers had served tours in Germany over the years, and they'd all gone right through Rhein-Main. And now I was part of that history. It gave me goosebumps. We went into the building where they looked at your files and gave you your assignments and sat in the waiting room. I had brought my Walkman with me, and I put my headphones on so I could hear some real German music. Little by little, I was starting to notice that things were different. They had rock music on the radio, but there were also stations playing oom-pa-pa music like you'd hear in a beer hall somewhere in Bavaria. Never heard that before. Even the toilets were different. I was loving my new life so far. One by one, the new people, affectionately referred to as newbies, were called and given instructions to get on this bus or that bus, which would take them to their new assignments. But for some reason, I and most of the guys I'd flown, flown over with weren't getting called. By the end of the afternoon, the short female sergeant who was working the desk told us that our assignments weren't ready yet and that they were closing for the day. Since it was Friday, we were put up in some temporary barracks and told to just hang out, cool our heels for the weekend, and we'd be given our duty station assignments on Monday. We got settled into our barracks, and a couple guys made plans to go to the shop at, get some beer for the evening, while others made plans to catch a cab for downtown Frankfurt. Myself, I had other plans. It just so happens... Just so happened that one of my best friends from back home, Steve Lester, was in the Air Force and was stationed at Ramstein Air Base about an hour south of Rhein-Main. We hadn't stayed in touch very often in the previous couple years, but I called him up and told him that I was in Rhein-Main for the weekend and hoped he might be able to come up. He was excited to hear from me and told me to sit tight. He would be there in about an hour to pick me up and show me around a bit and introduce me to a little bit of Germany. As I hung up the phone, I became instantly aware of how lucky I was that Steve was in Germany as well. We'd met in high school at my church youth group and became friends immediately. He was an easy guy to like and was fun to hang around with. He'd gone through one year of college at the University of New Hampshire but ended up with piss poor grades, which I never understood because Steve was always really, really smart. And after realizing he was not college material, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force as an air traffic controller and had been to places like Homestead Air Force Base in Miami, McCord Air Force Base in Tacoma, Washington, Turkey, and of course now Ramstein Air Base in Germany, which is very fortunate for me. Although I didn't realize it at the time, Steve and I would be spending a lot of time together during my stay in Germany, and the trips and adventures we would share would strengthen our friendship more than I can ever imagine. Steve remains, to this day, my favorite traveling companion. He showed up at the barracks, and we figured we'd hit the club for a beer and take in a movie and just catch up a bit. We went to the little club on base, and that was where I had my first authentic German beer in Germany. Now, for a beer lover like me, it was quite a moment. We went to see the movie As Good As It Gets, I recall, and, and at the theater on base, and I was just so tired and jet-lagged that I actually fell asleep about halfway through the movie. Afterwards, Steve says, hey, why don't you come down and stay with, stay with Erica and I for the weekend? Erica was his co-worker and his girlfriend at the time, and I figured, why not? So we made the drive down to his place, which I fell in love with immediately. He lived in a little small, a small little village called Teleich bei la Froschen, and his place was so big and cool that I immediately dubbed it The Bachelor Pad his relationship with Erica notwithstanding. As it turned out, Erica was on shift that night, so he took me to downtown Launchstuhl, which is the town that Ramstein is in, and we went out for my first German meal. Of course, I had to have schnitzel. I'd heard of schnitzel, and since I was determined to get everything out of my German experience as possible, it was only fitting that it was my first official German meal. For the, un for the uninitiated, schnitzel is basically a breaded pork cutlet. It's served with a variety of different sauces and or toppings. My favorite is the Jaeger schnitzel which is a schnitzel served with a brown mushroom gravy sauce on top. The meal was fantastic. After that, we hit up the local Irish pub and drank Guinness all night until Erica got out of work and picked us up. My first weekend in Germany was turning into exactly what I was hoping for. 
On Sunday afternoon, Steve and Erica drove me back up to Rhinemine, which I remember for one, for one main reason. As we drove close to Frankfurt on our way to the base, we drove right past the stadium where Frankfurt's soccer team, Eintracht Frankfurt, played their home games. This was a big deal for me because I'd grown up watching the German professional soccer league, the Bundesliga, on Sunday mornings. And here I was, so many years later, actually seeing one of the stadiums in person. Anyway, I got back to the barracks, had a couple beers with the guys in my room. I remember there was a Mexican guy with us named Gallegos, who uh, he, he'd went out and bought a case of Tecate, which is a Mexican beer at the shop at, and I just couldn't stop laughing at him for being in Germany and drinking Mexican beer. Old abs die hard, I guess. Chapter 4, Charlie Rock. Monday morning rolled around, and we went back to the in-processing building to wait for our assignments. While we were there, Stephanie finally arrived and was happy to see some familiar faces. So we waited and waited, and eventually we were given our orders. Mine said, C Company, 121st Signal Battalion, Kitsigan. I'd never heard of that unit or that place, but by that time I was just so anxious to get to my unit and get started on my new life that I just didn't care where I was. I was happy to hear that a few of the other people I'd come over with had received orders either to, either to the same base as me or ones in the same area. So we all got on the bus, which was marked Würzburg, and took a seat. As it turns out, Würzburg was the home of, of the 98th Area Support Group, which encompassed three main military communities, Würzburg, home of the 1st Infantry Division, Kitzigan, which is made up of two small bases, and Giebelstadt, which is the home of a Chinook helicopter base nicknamed Big Windy. All three places were within about a half an hour of each other, so everyone stationed at any of them all had to go to, re to the reception station in Kitzigan to do their in-processing. The bus pulled up, and I stepped off, looking around, surveying my new home. My excitement was just off the charts. I could not wait to explore my new surroundings. But first there was the business of filling out more forms, getting an initial welcome brief, meeting my new unit. They had called all of our respective units while we were filling out the plethora of forms and informed them of our arrival. When we were done, we were released to the hallway outside where our unit representatives were supposed to be waiting for us. I looked around at all the faces, wondering which one I belonged to. I hadn't known very many active duty army people before, so I had no idea what to expect or what they were like. Most of them were in the hallway yelling out names they'd been given, but I wasn't hearing my name, so I just stood next to my duffel bag and just kind of looked around quietly. After a few minutes, a sullen, hard-jawed soldier walked up to me, and I met the man who would have the biggest influence over my life for the next two years. Are you Thibodeau? Yep, that's me. I'm Sergeant Hanover, your new NCOIC. Now, by the time he left Germany almost two years later, I would consider him a very good friend. But my, impre my first impression of Sergeant Hanover was not a good one. He had a pissed-off look in his face that seldom changed. His mannerisms and actions seemed to say that he didn't want to be bothered with me, that he had better things to do. He had a real tough guy look about him, too, a look that just commanded respect, even though he was the exact same age as I was. I wasn't really intimidated, but I was worried that this guy was not going to be pleasant to work for. His uniform was crisply, crisply pressed, and his boots were impressively shined. I quickly noticed that Sergeant Hanover was a man of few words. In fact, he, held him said any, he, in fact, he seldom said anything unless you asked him to, a direct question, and even then his answers were usually one or two words at best. Some people try to go to great lengths to project a tough guy image, but this guy was a real deal. He didn't even have to try. With him was a real skinny, scrawny black kid whose uniform hung off him like it was two sizes too big. Hanover introduced him to me as PFC Gathers and told me he was also in our section and we would be working together. Now, compared to Hanover, <clears throat> Gathers looked like a cartoon, and I was privately relieved that not everyone I would be working with is going to be like Hanover. We picked up my bags, and Hanover instructed me to follow him. I did so even though he walked so fast that I had trouble keeping up with him, and he led me down to the barracks where we dumped my bags in a small room that wasn't much bigger than the office that I'd occupied at the, do at the job I just left. I wanted to take it all in, but Hanover was moving so fast that I didn't have time to even check out the room. Apparently, the entire battalion was preparing for a big inspection, and so everyone was on edge and running around trying to make sure everything was straight. We walked through the barracks, and suddenly a larger-than-life figure appeared before us, Sergeant Major Paul E. Skandrick. Sergeant Major Skandrick was the battalion sergeant major, which meant he was the highest-ranking enlisted non-officer in the battalion. He was about six foot three and had an impeccable uniform without a wrinkle on it and cut a very imposing figure. Everyone around seemed to be scared of him, but coming straight out of the civilian world, I hadn't yet figured out how we were supposed to act around such people. I got a quick indoctrination. Sergeant Hanover introduced me as his new soldier, and Sergeant Major Skandrick welcomed me. 
He was very nice and informal, so it never occurred to me that I was an E-4 addressing my battalion sergeant major, which meant that I was supposed to be doing so from the position of parade rest. Instead, I stood there and addressed him like I was talking with one of my buddies back home, hand gestures and all. I can't even imagine what must have been going through Sergeant Hanover's mind as he watched his new soldier talking to the sergeant major in such a manner, but he quickly leaned into my ear and whispered, Get a parade rest! Without, within about a millisecond, I realized that this was a whole new world I was in. I'd been in the Army Reserves for seven years, but active duty was different. Hell, one time a sergeant major walked into the reserve center, and when I yelled, Eddie's! Everyone laughed at me, including the sergeant major who told me, I appreciate it, son, but we don't do those kinds of things around here. Well, I felt pretty stupid, but quickly snapped the parade rest and shut up. Sergeant Major Scandrick welcomed me once again and then took off down the hall. Looking back, I think I even saw him chuckling as he was walking away. With that, Hanover turned and told me to follow him to the company area so he could introduce me to, so he could introduce me to the first sergeant. By this point, Hanover had to be wondering to himself, what the hell kind of terrible soldier have they given me, Jesus? It had been about an hour since I first met him, and he hadn't uttered more than about six or seven sentences to me in the whole time. I was determined not to let him get to me, and as we walked, I tried to talk to him a little bit. So, how long have you been in Germany? A few months. How do you like it? It fucking sucks. Really, what don't you like about it? Everything. Fucking lazy-ass soldiers always complaining about working too much or bitching that they had to miss child. I wish I was back in Bragg. I hate this place. <clears throat> Yikes. This was exactly what I was afraid of when I was debating whether or not to join the Army. Hanover seemed to be the living personification of everything I feared the Army would be like. We got to the company, and Hanover took me in to meet the First Sergeant, First Sergeant Holmes. Now, First Sergeant Holmes was instantly intimidating, but very friendly. He sat at his desk and gave me a quick welcome and told me a little bit about the company and what would be expected of me. Then he asked me a few questions. How old are you? 26, First Sergeant. Are you married? No, First Sergeant. Any kids? No, First Sergeant. Do you have a college degree? Yes, First Sergeant. At this point, I looked over at Sergeant Hanover. Well, damn, Sergeant Hanover. It looks like we found us the perfect soldier. I can only imagine what Sergeant Hanover must have been thinking when he heard that. But to his credit, he just shook his head and said, yes, First Sergeant. From there, it was time to meet the other people in my section that I'd be working with. I was assigned to the retrans section, which is primarily responsible for setting up radio retransmission stations between two points that were too far away from each other to be able to communicate. Hanover took me into the retrans office and introduced me to the guys in the section. Nobody was particularly welcoming, instead preferring to portray the, the tough guy attitude until they had a chance to size up the new guy. They weren't that bad, though. The guy I took notice of right away was a short, stocky, loud, cocky show-off named Falcon. He was a specialist, the E-4, same rank that I was, and just seemed to command that all the attention was centered on him as he spoke. He talked like he thought he was black, and everybody was laughing at everything that came out of his mouth. Falcon and I would eventually become enemies for several reasons, more about that later, but I have to admit I really liked him at first. He wasn't very educated, that was painfully obvious, but he sure was entertaining. He was also a gym rat, was pretty muscular for such a small guy, and he did pretty well with the ladies, or at least like the brag that he did. Another guy in the unit was Crenshaw. Crenshaw was an E2. When I got to the unit, he was always good for comic relief. He was from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. He was overweight and just couldn't seem to decide if he wanted to be a redneck, a beach boy, or a brother, so he just kind of acted like all of them at any given moment. As the lowest-ranking soldier and an overweight one at that, Crenshaw got picked on a lot, but I'll tell you, he was a good sport about it and usually gave just as good as he received. We also had a Mexican-American guy named Specialist Martinez who I liked. He was very friendly and easy to get along with. And then there was Sergeant Stewart, the other E5 in the shop. Sergeant Stewart didn't talk much, but he was really laid back and easy, easygoing as well. Overall, I had a pretty good feeling about the guys I'd be working with. Unfortunately, I would not be able to say the same about my roommate. At the end of the day, I went back to my room to meet the guy I'd be living with for the foreseeable future. His name was PFC Michael Roberts, and we had absolutely nothing in common. I was a white guy from middle-class town in New England. He was a black guy from rural South Carolina. Now, this in and itself was not a problem. After all, my roommate four years of college was a black guy from the inner city who was there on a basketball scholarship and someone with whom I had nothing in common either. However, we got along really well and actually chose to be roommates each year. Roberts was different. He didn't seem to like the fact that they'd given him a white roommate who might step on his game. From the moment I met him, he never stopped trying to show off and also went to great pains to try to make me realize that this was his room first and that he had the run of it. 
he would often come in and put his music on the stereo and turn it up really loud and then play the same song over and over, which kind of got annoying. His favorite song at the time was Casey and JoJo's All My Life, which fortunately for me, I actually really liked, so I didn't mind hearing it 17 times in a row, but it did get annoying after a while. Roberts was a mechanic, and he worked in the motor pool, so I figured, well, at least I don't have to work with him. I only have to put up with his act in the room. Our first day in the room together didn't go very smoothly as Roberts set me up for failure immediately. I was brand new, and I had never been on active duty before, so I had no idea what the daily routine was. Now, the Army's gotten much better at helping new soldiers learn the ropes, and but at the time, I felt like I was sort of flapping in the breeze with no one to show me what the hell I was supposed to be doing or where and when I was supposed to be doing it. I figured I'd just follow Robert since he was there, since he'd been there for a while. Well, Roberts decided to oversleep that first morning and then jump out of bed yelling in a panic, Oh, shit, we late. We got to get the formation. So following his lead, I quickly threw on my PT, your physical training uniform, and ran out the door on his heels toward the company area. By the time we ran through the gate into the company area, the company was already formed up and the first sergeant was preparing the company for PT, your physical training. Now, <clears throat> showing up late to formation is a bad thing. Do it once, you'll usually get a stern talking to and a warning not to let it happen again. Do it once or twice more, and you risk increasingly severe punishment. It was my first day, and I was already 0 for 1. After formation, Sergeant Hanover took me aside and asked why I was late, and I just said that I had no idea what the schedule was, but now that I knew it wouldn't happen again. Hanover also called Roberts over and told him that since I was new, it was his responsibility to make sure that I knew where I was supposed to be and what, what time formation was, and that he'd better not let it happen again. It kind of felt like a child being lectured like that, but hey, it's the Army, so I just told Hanover and I won't let it happen again, and he seemed satisfied with that. I really wanted to make a good and first impression and do well there, but I was a little frustrated at my bad start. Well, what the hell, it happens. And to his credit, Robert, Roberts even apologized and agreed that he screwed up. Now, since I had just arrived, it would actually be a couple weeks before I did anything with the company, including physical training or PT. New arrivals must spend about three weeks going through a reception and integration process. During this process, you fill out a bunch of forms, you get issued all your Army gear, you get some driver's training for the purpose of getting your German driver's license, you get training on so many different things, and then you go through a two-week class called Head Start. Head Start was actually pretty fun. The purpose of the class is to give you an introduction to Germany, the culture, the food, the people, the language, the money. Uh, reminder, this was before the introduction of the Euro, so it's still the Deutschmark how to take the trains, how to order food, pretty much everything you need to know to make your stay in Germany fun and easier to deal with. Now, since my main purpose in joining the Army was to see Europe and do some traveling, this was right up my alley. For me, it's not enough to just take a trip somewhere and look at some stuff and then leave. No, I want to know at least a little bit about the place and I'm going and things I'm seeing. And I'm not talking about the usual mundane stuff you learn on a tour, like, oh, this church was built by King What's-His-Name in the 16th century and took 30 years to complete. I mean, there's value in that, and I enjoy it, but I'm talking about the actual culture, the stuff you learn almost by accident when you're traveling. Head Start was perfect for this because it allowed me to suck up all the information about my new country that I could handle. Unfortunately, I seemed to be the only one who had such an interest. Most of the other people were young soldiers fresh out of basic training in AIT, that's your job school, um, and this was their first duty station. They were too young, inexperienced, and somewhat naive to appreciate this glorious opportunity that they had. I was almost resentful of the fact that they were even in Europe at all. And the older soldiers who had been around were more interested in getting through the class as quickly as possible and getting to their new jobs. I couldn't fathom why. To me, this is like a three-week vacation, sort of the calm before the storm. U.S. Army Europe had a strict policy that new soldiers who were going through reception and integration were not to be touched by the unit for anything. They would go to formation in the morning for accountability, but they would not do PT. <clears throat> they would instead go to the reception station and spend the day doing their processing or head start. Units were also not allowed to put in, uh, new soldiers on any kind of duty until they were finished with their three-week in processing, including head start. There were a few others in my class who were with me at reception station at Fort Jackson, such as Bosch and Stephanie, and we kind of all hung around together during the processing and head start. Both of them were stationed at Giebelstadt, so I only saw them during the day, which kind of sucked because I didn't really know anybody on my base. There was a guy from Puerto Rico who had come over in Fort Jackson with us named Rivera. Uh, he was also stationed at Larson Barracks with me uh, in a different unit, so he and I became friends. Rivera was a master at shining boots and tried to help me several times, but shining boots is just one of those things I've never been able to do very well. And not for lack of trying either. I've spent countless hours trying all kinds of different methods that people have shown me and just never been able to get it, get very good at it. I could get them to where they look pretty good, but 
compared to other people's, man, they just looked average. It's just one of those things about the military that I always thought was given too much importance and was stupid. The thing is, it's impossible to keep your boots shined in the Army because you're working in some really dirty areas doing a really dirty job most of the time. It's just not practical. And what used to drive me crazy was the fact that the people who would always get on you about making sure your boots were shined were the first sergeants and the sergeant majors. Sergeants major, excuse me. Their boots would always be glowing, and they tell you that yours should be like theirs. Well, of course their boots are always so shiny. They sit at a friggin' desk all day. You probably only have to actually shine them like once a month. Anyway, I digress. But one uniform quirk that I didn't have as much trouble with is making sure that they were neatly pressed. I can't iron very well, but I didn't have to because there was a laundry on base where you would drop off your uniforms and get them back a few days later neatly starched and pressed. The funniest thing was that some guys would really overdo it on the starch. They would actually get them, get them uh, pressed using heavy, heavy starch. The uniforms would come out like cardboard, literally, and make a loud whooshing sound when they walked. It was comical. But I did learn pretty quickly that shine boots and a nicely pressed uniform made you feel as sharp as you looked. It really did fill you with a certain measure of pride and confidence. Chapter 5, Kitzigan. I was really lucky to arrive in Germany when I did because it was May and the weather was absolutely gorgeous. Every day was nice and sunny. The normal working schedule gave you weekends off, which I always took advantage of. My first weekend there, I decided I would do some exploring, and what better place to start than Kitzigan, the town that would be my home for the next two years. I got up early and headed out the front gate. I had no idea whether to go left or right once I got outside of the gate, so I decided on left. Now, Kitzigan is a small city of about 20,000 located right on the Mine River. There are two small, or there were two small bases located in Kitzigan, Harvey Barracks and Larson Barracks, which were located on opposite sides of the city. Larson, where I was stationed, was on a hill overlooking the eastern part of the city and the surrounding area. The view was impressive, and as I walked out of the gate, I could not help standing there for a few minutes just admiring it. I snapped a few photos and continued on. <clears throat> I really didn't know where I was going, so I figured I'd just start walking in the direction that I thought the main part of the city was. It didn't take long to realize that I was headed in the wrong direction as I was on a street with a bunch of houses. There was one house where the family was outside washing their car. Now, at the time, U.S. military member stationed in Europe had license plates on their cars that said USA on them and looked different than the host country license plate. So they were obviously American, and I got directions from them on how to get downtown. Now, the first thing I ran into was the local soccer field. Man, it was glorious. It was so much nicer and well-kept than most of the fields I grew up in playing on in the U.S. I watched some local kids playing for a while, and then I continued on towards the center of town where suddenly there appeared before me a huge, funny-looking medieval tower. It wasn't very fancy, mostly just tall, round, and made of gray brick with a pointy dark, orange on, pointy, dark orange top. What made it funny looking was that the top part was actually crooked. The tower itself was perfectly straight, but that pointy part at the top actually leaned. It was actually pretty amusing to see. I'd always heard stories of the famous German efficiency, but looking at that tower, I surmised that maybe the term must have originated sometime after the Middle Ages. Kitzigan itself had a slight medieval feel to it. It was obvious that the city was very old, and due to its location right on the Mine River, had probably been part of the, of the wine trade that once dominated the, the area. One thing that really stood out to me were the paintings and illustrations on some of the houses and the buildings. I'd never seen anything like that before, and laying eyes on them immediately made me realize that I was indeed in a different country. It was like something you'd see in a history book while you were studying World War II history in school. There were drawings, paintings, and words written in the old German style. There were strange letters that we didn't have in the U.S., weird things that you couldn't tell if it was a B or an F or maybe an S. I was loving it. This was the reason I joined the Army and came overseas, to learn about other cultures, their languages, and customs. And yes, even their alphabet. I hadn't even started Head Start yet, so I knew next to nothing about Germany and its culture. Unfortunately, I found out rather quick that most Germans speak at least a little bit of English. Many are practically fluent. I figured the main reason was because of the presence of the U.S. and the British military bases for so many years, which I'm sure had an influence on what the average German learned both in school and in their everyday lives. Whatever the reason, it sure was convenient to someone who had just arrived in country and was trying to find his way around. I found the Germans to be extremely friendly and helpful. The bases in Kitzigan had been there many years, and I'm sure the locals had learned to appreciate the American presence there. And some of, them, some of the older folks I met were especially welcoming. The younger generation who didn't grow up in the Cold War didn't seem to think that the American presence was needed, but at the same time didn't really seem to mind that we were there either. 
In my two years in Germany, I can safely say that I never encountered a single German who didn't like Americans and who didn't make me feel welcome in their country. Of course, it helped from day one that I knew how to, how to act in a foreign country. I didn't dress like a tourist or in a manner that screamed, look at me, I'm an American, like some others did. I came to Germany with the attitude that I was a guest and I should try to act like one. I've always respected whatever culture I was living or traveling in, no matter how backwards or wrong or different I, th I may have thought certain aspects of it were. For just as I wouldn't take too kindly to someone from another country coming to the U.S. and criticizing everything about it, it would be wrong of me to do the same to anyone else. When you have this kind of attitude, the locals tend to treat you a little better and they use you more friendly and helpful. And that makes it so much easier and enjoyable to travel and experience the other cultures. You also have to have a sense of humor about things and be able to adapt to various situations, which I think I've been able to do pretty well. My first day in Kitsigan was uneventful, but it served as a good primer to exploring bigger and better things. There's not much in Kitsigan for a tourist to see, but I enjoyed looking around and taking in the new culture that I would be living in for the next couple years. I stopped at a little coffee shop to get a cappuccino and noticed that the Germans served their cappuccino topped with whipped cream rather than frothed milk. It was one of those little cultural differences that always interested me. After a couple hours walking around, I figured I'd seen everything and headed back to the base. On the way back, I happened to glance down a side street and I noticed a little sign jutting out from the second floor of a building halfway down. It read, Sports Bar. Well, well, this was exactly what I needed, I thought to myself. I popped in to check it out and it was empty except for a young German guy watching a car race on the television. The World Cup was rapidly approaching and I needed to make sure that they would be showing the matches. The guy spoke very good English and set my mind at ease by informing me that, yes, they would be showing all the matches. So I left and headed back to the base, ever more eager to experience a World Cup living in Europe. Chapter 6, Life in the Barracks. It was still early in the afternoon, and I had no idea what I was going to do for the rest of the day since I didn't know anybody. So on my way back to the barracks, I stopped at the library to get some books. Now, due to all the time that I'd spent in Barnes & Noble before joining the Army, reading all sorts of books had developed into my preferred manner of killing time. In reality, I wasn't much of a reader. As I looked around and tried to figure out what kind of books might keep me busy, an interesting thought occurred to me. I'd been there about a week, and based on my experiences thus far, I was worried that I was kind of living in a culture vacuum. I was kind of worried about how I would get along with the guys in the barracks. I wanted to fit in, but I didn't want to become just like them. With that in mind, I decided to borrow some books that not only interested me, but that would challenge my mind a bit. This, I thought, would keep me a little more well-rounded. I got my books, and I headed back to the barracks where a bunch of the guys were hanging around outside. Now, in front of our barracks, there was a little barbecue area with a big stone grill. On the weekends, a lot of the guys would get a bunch of beer and meat and continue the age-old American tradition of grilling and getting drunk on watery beer. I hadn't really talked to any of them since I was still in Head Start, and none of them were particularly welcoming, so I just kind of walked into the barracks without even looking over at them. Although a big part of me did, really did want to join them. As I was walking over, Sergeant Hanover yelled over to me and told me to hang on. He walked over beer in hand and asked what I was up to, and I said, Nah, nothing much, just spent the morning walking around downtown. Now I got some books, so I figured I'd just go to the room to do, do some reading. Hanover looked down at the stack of books I was holding and asked to see what I was reading. He looked at the book on top, a collection of poems by Robert Frost, and got a confused look in his face, and then a half a smile. Goddamn, Thibodeau, what are you, some kind of scholar? I laughed, and I made a joke about wanting to keep my mind sharp, and then his face took on its familiar, solemn look, and he kind of looked a bit uncomfortable in this semi-social situation. Well, we're just drinking some beers and cooking some food. You can join us if you want. I said thanks and said I'd come down after putting my stuff away. Well, this was it. I was finally going to hang out with the guys. I was actually a little nervous, like I was a new kid at school who was being invited to a party for the first time. We didn't really know anybody. I'd never really been an outgoing person, and I didn't make friends very easily, so I, I was probably more uncomfortable than anything. These were people that I had no experience hanging out with. Even in the reserves, most of the people I knew were college students or people with families. I didn't have much caveman in me, so I wasn't sure if I fit in very well because I had no intention of changing my personality just to be one of the guys. As it turned out, most of them were actually pretty cool. Of course, it helped that they'd been drinking for a while and they were a bit friendlier than they might have been otherwise. What I didn't realize at the time was that in the military, people are constantly coming and going. People leave, new people arrive. So being a new guy wasn't really any big deal. To them, every, everything was the same except there was a new guy around. To me, I was the same, but the entire world around me was new. It was obvious to everyone right away that the new guy wasn't just new, he was different. 
Hanover had told everyone about my eclectic selection of reading material. That was the first clue. The second was my taste in beer. Now, over the years, my taste in beer had evolved quite a bit. When I was in college, I drank the cheapest stuff I could get because I couldn't afford anything else. It was about getting drunk for the least amount of money, no matter how nasty the beer tasted. So I drank stuff like Keystone and Milwaukee's Best. When I graduated and started working, I started buying slightly better beer. My roommates drank Sam Adams, but I didn't like it at first. I wasn't used to drinking beer with actual flavor. Eventually, I took to it. When I did, most domestic American beers started tasting horrible to me. Pretty soon, there was an explosion in the popularity of microbreweries, and the focus was on craft beers and the specialty beers with unique and complex tastes. Then sometime in the mid-90s, I discovered, I discovered Guinness Stout on tap, which has been my brew of choice ever since. So there I was, surrounded by a bunch of people who were all drinking Budweiser, Bud Light, and Miller Genuine Draft. I didn't want to seem like a snob, but I just could not stomach this stuff. And I also could not for the life of me understand why these people were drinking this stuff when they were in a country known, above all, for its world-class beer. It was incomprehensible to me. I made polite conversations with a few of them, but most of the conversation was dominated by Falcon, who was in his element and holding court. He was buzzing pretty well and was as loud and as, as obnoxious as ever. But his stories were amusing, and most of us just sat there while he loudly and animated told them laughing. After an hour or so, Martinez drove up and joined the party. Martinez was married and lived off base, but from what I could tell, his home life wasn't very pleasant as he spent most of his time in the barracks hanging out with us. After a while, I could not take the beer selection any longer and asked if anybody wanted to go to the shopette with me to get something else. Martinez offered to drive me up, which is cool because it gave me a chance to get to know him a little bit. Turned out to be a really good guy, easygoing, likable. We got to the shopette. I walked into the big beer cooler when, to my great astonishment, they had Murphy's Irish Stout in the big widget bottles. A widget bottle was a bottle with a little plastic widget that, when the bottle was open, released some kind of gas used in the beer you get on, in, on tap or in draft in a bar. This was supposed to make the beer taste very similar to what you would get on draft rather than in a bottle. And as such, the beer was supposed to be drunk out of a glass. Well, I don't have to tell you, but I was in heaven and I bought a case along with the big glass to drink it out of. We got back to the barbecue, and everyone looked at the beer I'd bought with astonishment as if they'd never seen dark beer in a bottle before. The looks on their faces when I poured it were just priceless, as if I were drinking some kind of beer from the future. Of course, it didn't take long for Falcon to chime in. What the hell is that? Motor oil? Pretty soon, a guy named Garrett wrote, or I'm sorry, pretty soon a guy named Garnett strolled over and joined us. Now, Garnett was an Irish guy from New York City, so we, were, we started talking, and it felt great to talk to a fellow Yankee. There was some initial tension between us because, of course, he was from New York and I was from near Boston, which meant he was a Yankees fan and I was a Red Sox fan. But it soon passed, and we realized we had quite a bit in common. He was especially impressed when I told him about how we used to hang out in the Irish pubs a lot back home and that I knew a lot of the Irish drinking songs. He also loved how I pronounced his name with my Boston accent, Garnett. Garnett also had some kind of problem with his right eye, which had some kind of red blood splotch in it. It was obvious that he'd been, he'd been in a fight recently. I offered him a Murphy's, and he declined, and opting instead for a Budweiser. I jokingly gave him a hard time for that. You can't be Irish if you prefer a Bud over a Murphy's, but he didn't seem to mind. Hanover, on the other hand, wanted to try one. He went to his room and got a glass and poured himself one and was surprised to find he actually liked it. Eventually, Falcon asked me for one as well, not because he wanted to try it, but because he'd run out of Budweiser. And in keeping with his character, he drank it right out of the bottle. It tastes like motor oil, he kept yelling, but he finished the whole bottle. The next morning, he even complained that it had turned to shit black. The rest of the day was pretty much the same, but it was great because it was a perfect opportunity to meet most of the guys in the barracks that hung out together and that I would be likely spending most of my time, most of my free time with. Two of these were Britt and Johns, a couple of mechanics who shared a room on the floor below me. Gerald Britt was a redneck from North Carolina, and Patrick Johns was a gentle giant from Wyoming. I call him a gentle giant because he was probably the biggest guy in the company and around at least six foot four to six foot five or more and built pretty solid and someone who you would not want to get in a fight with. However, he had a very calm demeanor and never started trouble with anyone. Britt was a lot smaller and could be hyper at times, but I really liked him right away. As the day turned into night, somebody mentioned going to the NCO club. Now, the military used to have an NCO club and an officer club on pretty much every post, but for the most part, they didn't really exist anymore by that time. Every post had a club, but it was open to anyone, and rather than call it the NCO club, it had a name, usually something sports-related. Ours was called the End Zone, but most people just called it the NCO club. They had, a different, they had different themes to, to try to please a variety of soldiers on base, and Friday night was always country night. 
Country Night was extremely popular and always had a good mix of Americans and Germans, most of the latter being of the female persuasion. Well, I liked this concept right away. This was the kind of thing that I had signed up for. I'd always seen military movies where they go to the NCO or officers club on base and mingle with foreign women who were there to meet American men, and now I was one of those men. I was liking Germany more and more. The first thing I realized when I entered the club was that I really needed to update my wardrobe. The only civilian clothes I had brought with me were a few things that would fit in my duffel bag, and that wasn't much. The second thing I noticed was that there were a lot of rednecks on the base, and they were all right there in that club that night. Now, listen, before I go any further, let me explain, explain the term redneck. To some, it's considered a derogatory term, but that's not how I use it. I use, it to, I use the term to refer to people who are more country than city, usually from the South or Midwest. It's not meant as an insult. Some of my best friends are rednecks. Hell, I even got a little redneck in me at times. So if you're reading this or listening to this, I should say, and you fall into that category, don't be offended. Anyway, the club was filled with people in stark shirts, dinner platter-sized belt buckles, cowboy hats, and cowboy boots. The DJ had country tunes blasting on the speakers. The whole entire place was like one big cliche of what most people think of when they think of military people. White, southern, and very patriotic. I chuckled when the DJ played the song Sweet Home Alabama. As soon as the first chords were heard, a bunch of guys would jump out of their seats and start high-fiving each other and yelling, Yeehaw! As for us, we just kind of hung around, some of us at the bar, some of us at a table. Falcon was sitting at the table, drunk and holding court once again with some of the guys and and a few women who had joined the party. He really wasn't his element in there. Though from Louisiana, he didn't look or act like a redneck when he went to the club. I spent the night taking in the scene, observing and analyzing my new social surroundings. The end zone was a huge club, and I walked around, beer in hand, checking out everything. In addition to the main part, which contained the dance floor, they also had a couple pool tables, some video games, and some televisions, including one huge screen that was used to show sports or some other testosterone-laden programs. On this night, they were showing WrestleMania, and there were a half a dozen guys standing in front watching it who would just go crazy every time something happened, as if they'd never seen anything so amazing. It was quite amusing. I'd certainly watch my share of wrestling, but these guys were just taking it to a whole new level. I still kind of felt like an outsider, so I didn't bother trying to chat up any women or anything so bold as that. I just kind of enjoyed being there at that moment, experiencing a scene that we had nothing even remotely close to back home. I loved every minute of it. Around midnight, some of us decided to leave, so we walked out, and as I walked to the parking lot, a half-drunk, a half-drunk German girl approached me, almost as if on cue the other guys I was with said, oh, see you back at the barracks, Tib, and hastily took off, leaving me alone with this girl. She didn't waste any time making conversation either. She came right out and said in her broken American accent, I am drunk and I cannot drive. You can drive me home? Well, I might have taken, up or, taken her up on the offer were it not for two problems. One, I was drunk myself, and two, I had no car and no license. When I informed her of these unfortunate facts, she frowned a little, bade me farewell, and went off into, into the night in search of other, some other poor soul to bring her home that night. Man, I thought to myself, this is one crazy place. Now, never having been on active duty before, I had no idea what the day-to-day life or the weekends were like, but now that I was starting to learn, I liked it a lot. I loved the fact that I had no responsibilities, nothing hanging over me like a dark cloud, Everything was just fun and new. It was, it was like starting life all over again. The next morning, a few of us headed out to the chow hall for some breakfast. We were very lucky because the chow hall was located across the parking lot from our barracks, so it was a very short walk. The chow hall was one of my favorite parts of my new military life, believe it or not. Now, back home, neither I nor my roommates knew how to cook, so I pretty much lived off sandwiches and canned or frozen food. If I couldn't slap it between two, two slices of bread or heat it up in the microwave, I couldn't eat it. But now I had a place right next to me where I could get three square meals a day, totally free of charge. In military parlance, a chow hall is called a dining facility, or a defac for short. It's a time-honored tradition in the military to joke about how bad the food is, but I gotta tell you, I thought the food was actually really good. There are two sides to, to the defac normally. One side was short order, and the other was the main line. <clears throat> On the short order side, you can get your fill of greasy spoon type stuff like burgers, fries, fried chicken, pizza, stuff like that. The main line was the healthier stuff. They always had a pretty good variety to suit most tastes. I was still trying to get myself into army shape, so I always eschewed the short order line for the main line and stuck to things like baked chicken, rice, and vegetables. Breakfast, however, was a whole different ballgame. Where I was from, breakfast usually consisted of some kind of austere combination such as coffee and a bagel. We're always on the go and we don't have time to sit down for a home-cooked breakfast. 
The breakfast served in the defect contains pretty much everything you can imagine. Eggs and omelets made to order, bacon, sausage, oatmeal, grits, pancakes, it's all there. They also had lighter fare such as bagels, cereal, fruit, and yogurt. But for someone who had, sur- who had survived on sandwiches and Chef Boyardee for the, past four y- for the past five years, this was paradise. The next afternoon, I realized that I just could not survive without a te- television any longer. So I headed up to our little PX to buy one. Now, the term PX refers to post-exchange. It's basically a military department store, and the size and selection vary depending on the size of the base and the military community which it serves. Kitsigan is very small, and Larson Barracks is very, very small. So ours was tiny and had a limited selection of stuff. Next to the PX is the Shopette. The Shopette is basically the military version of a convenience store. It usually contains a video rental area and sometimes a small bookstore with books and magazines. Barnes and Noble it ain't, but at least it's possible to get American books and magazines overseas. I settled on the 29-inch Panasonic TV, a cheap VCR. This was still 1998, remember. And DVDs were non-existent. Uh, and then was dismayed to find that I also needed to buy a transformer for them. Now, anyone who's been overseas is familiar with transformers. In the U.S., the electricity runs at 110 volts, but in Europe and elsewhere, it runs at 220 volts. So if you plug your American item into an outlet in Europe, it would blow up. What a transformer does is converts the 220 power into a 110, so you can still use your American appliance, appli- American appliances overseas. Transformers can be expensive, though, with a medium-sized one running upwards of around 100 bucks or more. I bought one that would be powerful enough to run my TV and VCR, and it cost 120 bucks more than I paid for the damn VCR. But I was going to need something to keep me occupied in the room so I wouldn't have to deal with Robert's shenanigans, so I had no choice. The only problem I faced was that our room was pretty small and there wasn't much space to put everything in. As it was, I only had two large wall lockers in which to keep everything I owned, and one of those wall lockers was for all my military-related clothing and items. That meant that all my personal belongings had to fit inside one wall locker. I also had one small end table that sat at the end of my bed, so I put the TV and the VCR on top of that so I could just lay in bed and watch TV. The barracks rooms were not that big and were designed to house two soldiers each. In them were four wall lockers, two for each soldier, two beds, two small end tables, a desk, a small refrigerator, and a bathroom. What you try to do is arrange everything to get the maximum amount of space and in most cases try to create some privacy for both of you. The way Roberts and I had it, our beds were separated by the wall lockers. Each of us had a little private area with just barely enough room to move around, and it was sort of a small little common area with a couch. The desk was supposed to be for writing or doing work, but Roberts had put, put it in front of the couch and stacked his TV, VCR, and stereo on it. He said it was for both of us, and I would sometimes sit on the couch and read, but I never felt comfortable since it was all his stuff. And even though it was my room, too, I always felt like I was an unwelcome guest. In a way, it was strange because technically I outranked Roberts. I was an E-4 specialist, and he was an E-3 private first class or PFC. However, in the Army, there's usually little to no formality between the ranks below E-5 or sergeant. The Army likes to pretend there is, but the reality is different. In the Army's view, I, as the senior-ranking person, should have been in charge of the room. But in reality, I had no real authority or power at all, and Roberts knew it. So in the absence of such authority, I just kind of let him do his thing, and I just kind of kept it myself most of the time. Once I got my TV and VCR, I usually spent most of my time in the room on the bed watching TV or reading, since my bed was an enclosed area that afforded me some measure of privacy, however small. Often I would get a bit stir-crazy in my little space and would go down and hang out with Hanover or Falcon's room with the other guys. Hanover and Falcon lived on the first floor and both had their own rooms. Hanover was an NCO and NCOs got their own room. Falcon was an E4 like me, but he got his own room because he had seniority. I was so jealous of them and longed for the day when I wouldn't have to share such a small living space with anyone. But both of them were cool enough to make their rooms open to any of us any time to come down and hang out. After work, we'd usually hang out in Falcon's room watching a movie or TV. TV in the barracks is actually pretty interesting. All of the rooms had cable hookups and we received AFN free. AFN is Armed Forces Network. At the time, there were three or four channels showing all sorts of American programs. Now, AFN shows most of the same shows that were being shown in the U.S., but they showed them one season or one year behind. It's a pretty interesting arrangement. The production studios sell the shows to AFN at an extremely low cost so that military members overseas can watch the American TV shows, but the cut-rate bargain AFN receives comes with two conditions. First, they get last season's episodes, And second, they're not allowed to profit on the programs by selling ad space. This means that there are no commercials. 
Actually, there are commercials, but they are not advertisements for commercial products and services. Instead, AFN fills the ad time with public service announcement and ads for military-related things. For example, instead of an ad for a new car, AFN would show a 30-second spot on something like how to dress in your new country or who to call if you have a gambling problem. Most of them are extremely cheesy and poorly done, and making fun of, AF of AFN commercials is another one of those infamous time-honored military traditions. The funny thing was that I was able to watch some of the same shows that I had watched back home before I joined the Army, but because they were a season behind, I had the advantage of having already seen them. So sometimes we'd be in Falcons and watching something, and I'd be quote-unquote predicting everything before it happened. Chapter 7, Head Start. While I was getting to know life in the barracks pretty well, I still, still hadn't even started my job because I was still in processing. So while I would hang out with the guys in the evening or on weekends, my days were spent in Head Start with the people I had arrived in Germany with. As I mentioned earlier, I enjoyed Head Start. I had come to Europe because I wanted to experience different cultures. I actually wanted to do more than experience them. I wanted to engross myself in them, learn some of the local languages and customs, find out what made them different than what I grew up with. Most people back home were content to take a two-week vacation and consider that traveling. Not me. I wasn't satisfied with a couple weeks in a foreign place. I wanted more. What can you really learn in two weeks? Sure, you can go and look at a lot of famous monuments and statues and museums and such, but you're just seeing things that millions of other people in the world have already seen. Then you'll go home and show people pictures of your vacation and all the cool stuff you saw, but deep down inside, you'll still be the same person. That's why, despite being able to take a few trips to places like Montreal or Las Vegas, I was so unhappy back home. I just knew that I would never be satisfied by a yearly vacation somewhere because when I traveled, I found myself more interested in meeting and talking with the local people than going out and seeing the usual tourist attractions. I was in Germany now, and I couldn't wait to start traveling around and exploring my new country. But first, I wanted to learn some basic things that would make it easier to get around. Before we got the head start, there was a ton of other in-processing activities that had to be completed. These included going to the Central, Central Issuing Facility, or CIF, to get issued all your Army gear. All your uniforms and military clothing get issued when you first come in, and you take them with you as you move around. But all your Army gear belongs to the Army. It gets issued to you when you arrive, and when you leave, you have to clean it and turn it all back in. If anything is missing or in serviceable condition, you have to pay for it. I got in line with my shopping cart and waited for my turn. When it came, I stepped up to, I stepped up to the counter and watched them fill my cart with things like a flak vest, a Kevlar helmet, couple of canteens, cold weather boots, laundry bags, a sleeping bag, a pistol belt, a load-bearing vest to keep your carry all your ammunition, a chemical suit, all types of Rambo type, all kinds of Rambo type stuff. We also had to go to all the different offices on base and get a briefing from each one. We had to go to the education center so they could brief us on what our education benefits we were we, had, we were entitled to. We got briefed on what our medical benefits were and where all the medical and dental clinics were. Then there was the driver's testing. Now, for those of us who were new to Europe, we had to sit through a very long class and learn about the rules of driving in Germany and Europe. The driving laws in Europe are very different than, than in the U.S., and if we wanted to be able to drive there, we'd have to pass the written German driver's test. I found out that there are a lot of things different about driving in Germany, such as they have the Good Samaritan Law, which mandates that if you are the first person on the scene of an accident, you are required by law to render first aid to anyone who needs it until the paramedics arrive. You're also required to carry a first aid kit and warning triangles in your vehicle at all times. If you don't have these items in your vehicle during inspection, your vehicle will fail. For the written test, you have to learn all of the German road signs as well. Now, this is difficult for a lot of people because they are obviously all in German. I didn't have much of a problem with the test and I passed it on the first try, although several people in my class failed on their first try. I didn't own a vehicle and had no intention of buying one while I was in Germany since all my money would be used for traveling but I did want to have my license in case I ever needed to drive anywhere. Besides, most of the units required you to get your license, otherwise you wouldn't be able to drive your military vehicle, normally a Humvee. What you receive when you pass the test is called your USER, or U.S. Army Europe, license, which although technically is not a German driver's license, it acts as a permit to drive legally in Germany. Most other European companies recognize it as a valid driving license as well. So with all the briefings and other nonsense finished, it was time for Head Start. Our head start instructor was a local German woman named Frau Winkler. In German, the letter W is pronounced as a V, so her name was pronounced Winkler instead of Winkler. She was in her late 50s, and she had been teaching head start for years, so her English was pretty good. We each had to write our names on a little card and tape it to our desk so she could call us by our first names, and if any of us had a name that had a German translation, we had to use that. So if someone's name was Fred, he would have to write Friedrich on his card. 
Although I usually go by Rick, my full name is Richard, so for the duration of Head Start, I became known as Ricard. We spent day after day learning things like how to count in German, how to ask directions in German, how to order food in German, how to say the days of the week in German, how to greet people in German, how to make a phone calls to and, f to and from Germany. We learned all about the Deutschmark, which was the currency used in Germany at the time. We learned a little bit about our city, Kitzigan, during which I found out the interesting history behind the strange tower with the crooked top I'd seen downtown. Frau Winkler told us that, although the truth is probably that faulty engineering is responsible for the crooked top part, the locals have over the years invented a few more colorful explanations. My favorite was this. Kitzigan has always been a big wine town, and during the time when they were building the tower, which I believe was the 1300s, there was a severe drought. Because of the drought, there was no water to use to mix the cement, so they were forced to use the wine instead to finish the top part, which explains why it leaned, because it was drunk. It was this kind of local flavor that I loved. We learned about the kinds of food that were typical in Germany, like schnitzel and bratwurst. We also learned how to use the German train system, the Deutsche Bahn. Now, this part especially interested me, as I planned on using the train a lot. I'd never taken a train before, but I had ridden a subway often in a few different cities, so I figured it wouldn't be too different. Of course, it's much different, but I was determined to learn. An interesting thing I learned in Head Start is that German is the language that is most closely related to English. I found it's hard to believe, especially when you walk around and see words like Spielwerengeschaft and Einzelzimmer, but apparently English has many of its roots in the German language. Several words bear this out, such as Grün for green, Numer for number, and gut for good. Although obvious to seemingly everyone but me, I had never considered that the word kindergarten is a combination of two German words, kinder meaning child and garten meaning garden. So the word kindergarten actually refers to a garden where children grow and learn. This was the kind of stuff that fascinated me, why I wanted to come live in a foreign country. I probably could have learned a lot of it by just taking a German language course back home, but learning it while actually living in Germany was just so much more enjoyable. Plus, the best thing about learning the language and customs of a foreign country is being able to put them to use. For example, one of the things I learned in Head Start was that in Germany, in most of Europe, when you go to the market to buy fruit, you're actually not supposed to touch the fruit before you buy it. This is contrary to how it's done in the U.S., of course, where you pick up the fruit and inspect it until you find a piece that meets your own quality standards. In Germany, you must point to the fruit that you want, and then the owner of the fruit stand will pick up the fruit and bag it for you. Now, this has always baffled me as I've often bought fruit that I would not have picked out had I been allowed to inspect it myself. And as you can imagine, this has caused problems for a lot of Americans who are used to picking out their own fruit. Many of them will ignore the custom and start handling the fruit, which always leads to the owners yelling at them. There's a lot of customs like this that we as Americans don't agree with or can't make sense out of. And although I don't always like them, I do always try to respect them because it's not my country. After all, if a foreigner went to the U.S., I would expect them to obey all the laws and customs there, whether or not he, he or she disagreed with them. <clears throat> and speaking of strange customs and laws, here's another one that I learned which always made me laugh. Let's say you're driving a tank through the German countryside and you lose control and you go off the road into a farmer's field and you wipe out a portion of his crops. Not only will you have to pay for the crops that you ruined, but you may also have to pay him for any future crops that would have grown on the land that you ruined. Or if you're driving and you run over a farmer's chicken by accident. Not only will you have to pay the farmer for that chicken, but you'll also have to pay for all the chickens that that chicken would have had, and perhaps even all the chicken that those chickens would have had. I've never actually seen a law, so I can't verify it, but several Germans have told me, yes, this is absolutely true. One story that, that certainly isn't true, but that's been told for years, is that Dracula is buried in Kitzigan. So there's a graveyard in downtown Kitzigan that has a very unique grave in it, although it looks like more of a shrine than a tomb. There are carvings of skulls on it, as well as paintings of demons and hellfire and all kinds of other evil-looking decorations. According to Frau Winkler, the gravesite has been there for many, many years, and nobody's really sure who was buried there. But after World War II, when the Americans arrived, it became sort of a joke for the locals to tell them that the grave was actually that of Count Dracula himself. The skulls, demons, and all-around evil look of it, combined with the gullibility of some American soldiers, gave the rumor a life of its own. And many people have actually passed the story along as being real. Regardless, it is one creepy-looking grave. Now, looking back, I actually really enjoyed Head Start. It's the one thing that the Army does really well for its soldiers overseas, helping them get acclimated and acquainted with their new country. Many soldiers take it for granted that they get to live in Europe and for a couple years on the government's nickel, but not me. I was in for the whole deal as much as I could possibly suck out of the experience. 
As much as I hated, life, hated the life I had before I joined the Army and came to Europe, I've often thought that my many constant failures and lack, lack of direction were the best things that could have happened to me because they made me appreciate my new life and opportunities that much more. Compared to my old life, my new life was fun and exciting. There was no routine. There was always something to do, something new to learn, something new to experience and discover, some new adventures to be had. Things, were, things weren't always easy or fun, but one thing was for sure, they never got boring. After the life that I had come from, that was the best thing I could have asked for. And so while most people in my class treated Head Start like it was nothing more than some high school course that they were forced to attend in order to graduate, I viewed it as an initiation into a new life, a new life that I was extremely anxious to get started. The end.